Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review. Today we are diving into what is the most important aspect of our lives, our health. With buzzwords like personalized medicine on the rise, we want you to know what the real data is behind the cutting edge data science of medicine designed just for you. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and along with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shally Meng, dive into this world of very personal medicine with two editors of our special issue on clinical trials designed for a population of one person, or in data science speak, N of one. We have Dr. Karina Davidson, a clinical psychologist and professor in health outcomes at Norwell Health, and Professor Ken Chung, Professor of Biostatistics at Columbia University's School of Public Health. So thank you, Karina and Ken, for joining us for this special episode to really uh, promote this special issue in Harvard Data Science Review that two of you and others, you know, edited for on this uh, notion called end of one trial. What is this end of one trial? And I understand it's related to the notion called personalized medicine or precision medicine. So personalized trials or N of one trials are single subject, multiple crossover trials, usually with randomization. I know that sounds complicated. From a patient's perspective, that means that if you're not sure what treatment is best for you, you can work with your clinician to, say, test two blood pressure medications in a randomized order. And at the end of the trial, you will have a precision medicine response about which is the lowest amount of drug with the best blood pressure treatment with the fewest side effects that you should be taking. So N of 1 trials are a pretty powerful tool for helping us understand the best treatment, how to explore novel and new treatments for rare diseases, how to explore if there actually is a side effect that should be managed because a patient is having it routinely uh, during a personalized trial, or even how to de-implement one treatment when a patient has a lot of treatments by determining that it has no beneficial effect over all of the other treatments. So this is an exciting precision medicine approach to understanding what's the best management strategy for each and every patient. And in the issue, you'll see a lot of the dimensions of how to run them, how they've been used, what kinds of statistics should be used to properly analyze them, and frankly, a lot of opportunity for advances for data scientists, for statisticians, for clinicians, and for patients in uh, using this kind of approach. So if I get this straight, it's sort of like a personalized trial is what is used to create the personalized medicine. Yeah, thanks for asking this question. When Sally asked the question, he used the term N1, and then we evolved into saying that we call it personalized trial. And, and there are really many ways, at least to me, to think about this type of experimentation. One, one word I'd like to think about this is called a patient-centric trial in a way that it produces information that is in some way the conventional trial methodology does not give us. Um, like in, in the conventional trials, 
we randomize half the participants to a new drug, half to the old drug, and then hoping that the new drug would do wonder to everyone in the population. In end of one trial or a personalized trial or patient-centric trial does exactly the opposite, that uh, it randomizes the treatments to each single participant so that a participant will get the, the optimal drug for that, for him or her. I think that's very unconventional in the way that we do studies. I would imagine, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about which blood pressure medicine do I want to use versus sort of a big generalized general clinical trial of, you know, what are all these types of different people wanting to use? There must be special considerations that are necessary for personalized trials that aren't the same issues or things you worry about for general clinical trials. Is that the case? Yeah, so we have to follow patients for a longer period of time with closer monitoring. So those are the special design considerations that we need to plan ahead in order to get the good results for that particular person. It implies money, it implies time, it implies technology. So these are the, the ideas that we need to think in, in advance when we plan such a study. And I, I think in addition to the important parameters that Ken discussed, additionally, it can't be a binary outcome. So it can't be, you know, if someone's broken a leg, you, ca you can't have as the successful outcome, bone is healed or not. It has to be something that we can measure repeatedly. But in addition, the treatment exposure has to be reversible. So if you believe that cognitive behavioral therapy, when given for eight sessions, is not reversible, the patient doesn't unlearn what they learned in the last eight sessions, then that's not an amenable treatment to be using in an N of one or personalized trial. So you have to have symptoms that can be measured across time, a primary outcome that's not binary, treatments that are reversible. And we would say most definitely when there are evidence-based treatments and it's a life-threatening condition, that's another time when you don't use an N of one or personalized trial. You simply use the best treatment available. Karina, what you said is extremely helpful because I know that myself included, the first time I heard these uh, trials, I would say, how could that even be possible, right? Because, you know, you need a control, you need, uh, you know, placebo, you worry about the carryover effect, all those things. So it sounds like what you explained is that this, um, particularly this end of one trial is not for every kind of a disease. It's for certain kind of, probably it's more chronic, uh, longer period uh, disease that it has all these conditions. As Ken, you mentioned, there's a general clinical trials, right? We learn a lot. We have done for, for many, many decades. But now with this NOF1 trials, what are the advances in uh, data science technology particularly needed or, or what need to be developed in order to really uh, you know, address these uh, scientific questions at this NOF1 level? I will start uh, and quickly hand it over to Ken. Ken has been my longtime statistician colleague and compadre in many of these advances that you've just asked us about. So I think it's critical to consider many of the data management and statistical assumptions that have to be brought into the statistical approach and design approach for running a personalized trial. Some of the things we've grappled with and which are discussed at length in the special issue are how you calculate statistical power, 
how long a period and how many measurements have to be made. And when you are withdrawing from a treatment, whether or not you consider having a washout period, whether you consider having a placebo, and all of those require um, careful a priori statistical planning and uh, design. Can Yeah, so actually, because it's so new, I think there's really a lot of room for innovation for data scientists and statisticians. But I'll just focus on one specific area that fascinates me most when I work with uh, data from end-of-one trials as a data scientist or statistician. is that in some way, because an end-of-one trial involve shared decision-making between the doctors and the patients, right? So one of the critical elements is to give patients the right feedback so that they make informed decision. In a conventional trial, we have like a primary study endpoint, uh, we define blood pressure, whether it, it leads to a 5 millimeter decrease in blood pressure, that is a, a primary endpoint. But when we make decisions for personal treatment, the decision is more complex than that. It does not rely on one single endpoint. It's the totality of the evidence, right? So so I think this is the type of the information that we need to think of how to convey to the patient and how to evaluate the impact of the information we give to the patient. So these are a lot of data and we don't know how what, how to package it so that patient will make the best decision. And then after that, after the patients make the decision, we need to be able to evaluate whether they actually are making the right choice. So that will involve even longer follow-up. I think one of the challenges for your readers of this issue, and what we hope as editors, Ken, myself, and Jerry Sulls, who isn't on today, hope comes across as you read through all of the articles, is there's a really radical meta-assumption underlying the choice to use an N of one or personalized trial. As a clinical psychologist, my main interest is predicting the future of this one person. That's the universe I am trying to generalize to. I am not trying to generalize to the hypothetical average person. And many of our original statistics developed because we were unable to precisely predict the treatment response of a single person. And so we used data from other persons collected in the past and took the meta-assumption that the hypothetical average person was sufficient to predict best what a single individual would have as a treatment response. And we are rejecting that premise because data science and statistics and data collection has advanced sufficiently that we no longer need to study other people to find out how this person is going to benefit. We can study this person and we can do it in a scientifically precise way. Yeah, may, may, may I add, because I just can't help commenting on Karina's comment, is that uh, just very specific about like statistician when I was a student in statistics, our theory mainly focus on IID, so Saole will appreciate what ID means, right? But IID meaning uh, it's uh, means like um, independent and identical observations. It, this does not apply in our context. So this is where we need to evolve our citizen methodology and theory on. So just can't help. Sorry. Yeah, and and 
I hope we're not taking over your podcast, but for those data scientists and statisticians and methodologists who really want to grapple with this, we talk about the average half-life of a treatment or a medicine. Well, that's taken usually from 25-year-old white males, five of them, and then we expect that to be the half-life with some variability around it for everyone. Well, a 70-year-old black woman may have a half-life that's not even within the distribution that we got from the healthy 25-year-olds. Why are we doing that? We are doing that because earlier when we were developing our statistical techniques, we didn't have the opportunity to actually precisely measure a half-life level in a 70-year-old black woman. We can do that now. And so the advances that could happen in statistical techniques, approaches, and questioning the assumptions that we've laid down, I think will be very exciting to your readers. This this past answer has helped me understand sort of better than almost anything what this article, you know, what, what this special issue really is about and what personalized trials, N01, I, I feel like I kind of get it now. And I, I know you touched on this earlier, Karina, but where is it that these, these trials fit in sort of the broader clinical landscape in terms of what works for them and what doesn't? What diseases do work? What doesn't? What ailments work? What doesn't? So as I mentioned earlier, life-threatening illnesses should not be used or uh, have an N of 1 or personalized trial applied to them because, as Ken mentioned, they take time. We're randomizing time rather than persons. And so if time is of the essence for a fastly progressing or gravely ill condition, these do not apply. The converse, when when people start thinking there's only a few use cases for N of 1 trials or personalized trials, again, I rely on the fact that I come from the scientific field of clinical health psychology. We don't have a universal cure for anything. We don't have a cure for obesity, sedentary behavior, pain, asthma, all of the chronic diseases that everyone in the world struggles with that we don't have a universal cure for, those are amenable to N of 1 or personalized trials. Because if there's a right answer that works absolutely for everyone, we should be using that. But the 99% of the other conditions, symptoms, diagnoses, problems that we haven't solved yet, this is a very promising scientific approach. Yes, and I want to make a plug for the special issue. In the special issue, you see that different articles will feature different applications or use cases. So uh, one of the articles focused on rare diseases where doing a conventional trial would just not be feasible uh, to find one single drug that works for everybody. There's an article on using pain, chronic pain as an indication. So so there are really a, a lot of possible symptoms and indications for which and uh, one trials as applicable. Thank you to both of you. I think, uh, you know, what you raised uh, in general, I think this is really a fascinating uh, area um, for not just for the medicine. If you think about all these personalized trials, you can think about they go to other fields, educations, you know, other people you're doing marketing, right, so on and so forth. But I think the fundamental challenge here is that we know that as Karina, you said nothing really works universally for almost anyone. There's always a degree, what I call the resolution. There's always a degree how how much you want to get to, into the detail. But now it seems like N of one is is pushing the other boundary, saying we can be truly individualized. 
But if you think about it, you know, when you do N over one trial, I guess you are actually not really doing one person. You're just doing many of these N over one trials with many individuals, each one of them. So there are still things that can be learned and should be learned across these different individuals. Otherwise, a truly one person, let's say a new disease, one person uh, probably is going to be really hard to gather information. Am I correct? Is that there's a there's a degree of uh, borrowing information, but it's the personal information. The trial is on a personal level, and and somehow we find ways to combine to learn. So the general public has been pretty fascinated by this notion. Now we have personalized medicine to to treat you, right? And now if you talk to doctors, depending on who you talk to, some think you know we certain things where can be personalized, other things we're very far away from. Uh, really, truly, be personalized, and others probably think there's too much hype in this whole notion. Uh, certainly, maybe some, you know, there's some commercial interest in this as well. So, my question to both of you is: first, the, do you really see is it truly possible to be truly personalized? That's number one. Number two is that where are we at this moment in terms of our quest to get to? Are we the very beginning, in the middle, or we're, you know? Try things out. <laughs> sure, I have a somewhat long-winded answer. One, as Ken will tell you, for all of the statistical considerations for calculating statistical power, calculating the number of measurement intervals, the time of the trial, the number of crossovers, we we necessarily start with data from other people. So. Uh, to allay concerns of more conventionally trained statisticians, the need for uh, baseline information from normative trials or trials collected to, to um, guess predict, best predict the norm uh, is certainly a starting point for personalized trials. As we um, uh, thought about how to construct the special issue, we actually had someone dedicate an entire article on the other end of having performed a series of personalized trials, how can you conduct systematic analyses on them? Uh, because it is uh, very similar to a meta-analysis of conventional trials. You can conduct quantitatively a meta-analysis of personalized trials. And so you can move from the ipsative to the normative after the conduct of trials. And what Ken and I speak a lot about is it's a kind of deep phenotyping of a person that you rarely get from other types of trial designs. So I may know how a hypertension patient responds to lisinopril on average from a conventional randomized control trial, and I may know how the control uh, hypertension patients responded to a placebo, but I rarely know how one patient had in uh, precisely their blood pressure response to lisinopril and by random time interval, their response to placebo. And then if I added a second drug, um, I may know their response to that. So you get a much richer, deeper phenotype for observational exploration or for choosing people who may have interesting genotypes that you want to pursue. Now I'm going to answer you a second time. I want to challenge everyone who's listening to this and everyone who's reading this issue. Do we need to generalize? Is, is the question that we ask in conducting clinical trials 
about what is the normative response or the hypothetical average, which in some, as you know, meta-analyses applies to six or 7% of the population. When you go and you actually look at who is meets that empirically average um, person that was in an, an entire area of a treatment. Is that what we're about? If it is, we should continue doing the kind of statistical techniques we've been doing. But I believe what we're interested in is getting a scientifically precise response for each single person. I believe that's what we design educational trials, marketing trials, health trials for. And the path is wide open for statistical advancements, automation, consultation. There's a rich new field of work to be done by data scientists and by statisticians to move the field to the radical assumption that we should be predicting the universe of one person, not the universe of all persons. I fully agree. I, I think that is the grand goal. And the question is more, is that possible? Ken, you're going to say something. So the way I think about whether we can really accomplish this, I will start from the patient perspectives, right? Because again, using the blood pressure med as an example, we could equip the patient going to saying that, well, we know that, for example, amlodipine amlo is like one of the established like BP meds, right? But but we're going to experiment on you so that we get an informed answer whether this is the drug for you so that we randomize different drugs to that particular patient. And then at the end, we realize that uh, it, it does reduce blood pressure, but it also get, uh, have some side effects, right? So this is what I mean earlier that the totality of evidence. And so this is a type of data that we should capture and analyze, but also we can link that end of one trial observations to a bigger database where we have like imagine that we're millions of end of one trials in the database and everyone will have different uh, reactions to the drug either on the side effects on the blood pressure indication at least from the patient's perspective they know that they are getting the best of both worlds that they make a decision based on their own information as well as some existing knowledge out there in the cyberspace. And if I may I'll give you a concrete example of what Ken is talking about. Um, in the special issue, the final article describes a series of personalized trials for healthcare workers who have physician-diagnosed chronic lower back pain lasting at least 12 months. And there have been meta-analyses indicating that yoga, compared to alternative exercise, significantly improves lower back pain scores. And there's been also meta-analyses demonstrating that Swedish massage compared to sham massages, which means not actually massaging, but moving your hands over the person, um, significantly improves chronic low back pain. So as you can imagine, many patients with physician-diagnosed chronic low back pain that they've experienced for more than 12 months start self-experimenting. They try yoga, they try meditation, they try massage, they try all sorts of things to see if they can manage their pain or alleviate their pain. Both yoga and massage in these meta-analyses cause some people to have rebound pain. So two or three days later, they actually have worse pain, even if their pain got slightly better immediately after. 
but you don't know if you're one of those people. If you just know that, that on average, few people have that problem. So in these series of 60 personalized trials, where we randomized to three conditions across time, they got the evidence-based massage, they got the evidence-based yoga with home instruction of a physical therapist, so we knew that it was being delivered, and they got usual care, meaning they had nothing. And they had random two-week blocks of, with multiple crossover of those three conditions. Of those 60 people, we had people who had better pain relief with both active interventions compared to control. We had people who had one that was significantly better and the other was not. We had other people who the other was better and the one was not. We had people who were harmed by one, made better by the other compared to their usual care. We had people who were harmed by both. We had people who were harmed by the other one and not the first one. When you average the, the effect together from these series of 60 personalized trials, you find that massage on average did not improve back pain, even though it did substantially in some people. You found that yoga did not improve back pain even though it did substantially in some people. The, the aggregate to an average of this series of personalized trials returns these don't work. But for a substantial number of patients, as Ken said, when we presented them their data, they knew what to avoid and they knew what made them better. And that's the power of this particular trial design approach. I, I think that's a really great example of why this is going to completely change how an individual person interacts with their doctor and experiences their interactions with their doctor. And you, you mentioned a little bit before about how these trials are really going to transform the clinical encounter. But I have sort of a back-end question here. And Ken, you mentioned, you know, it's always the data scientists in the background doing the real, I don't want to say real work, sorry, 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 that's going to kill me, but doing the real work, I, it's clearly my bias is coming out. Um, but, you know, you're almost in a sense turning every doctor into a clinical trial doctor. And as statisticians, we know how much trouble we have with just the clinical trial doctors and getting them to really understand what these results mean and what they don't mean. So how is it that you're going to translate from the back end of what's going on in the data science of these of these types of trials into what the doctor should actually do and making and the doctor helping the patient make the right choices because they are not statisticians. And this is really hard to wrap your head around, even if you are a statistician or data scientist. So I'd love to answer what the dream is and then tell you all, um, turn it over to Ken to tell you all of the hard work that needs to be done to get to the dream. We dream of a clinician encounter where there's a patient who's newly diagnosed with hypertension. There is in the electronic health record, a button that can be pushed. Is this patient safe to try these three active drugs? The button is pushed. A box is mailed out to the patient. It has those three drugs in a cap that measures whether the cap is opened or not. The, the three drugs say A, B, and C. There's a home blood pressure monitor in there. The patient is text each day telling them which medication to take from which pill bottle. 
The data is returned and automated so that a report is generated that is understandable to the patient and to the clinician, and it pops up in the electronic health record, which is the point at which the clinician asks the patient for a telehealth visit to discuss which one they should be on for their lifelong. That is the system that Ken, his postdocs, and a number of uh, PhD students have been working to develop for us. Ken. Yeah, to me, it's not really a dream. It's actually, I think, happening. I think one of the articles in the special issue feature an application of an um, shiny app that provides some sort of clinical support system for a study coordinator. So this is a why now question why like personalized trials become feasible now is because of the computing platform that's available to, to all data scientists that we can transform like whatever is the backend into a user interface that physicians can use. So I definitely refer you to that, that article on how to develop apps to, to do the interface. And this is a solid piece of work. But the amazing thing to me is that that's so simple to do. Every trained data scientist will have the training to create that kind of interface to support what we will need in the clinic. So I think that's, to me, not a dream. We is getting, is getting here. Both of you have talked about quite a bit of uh, reasons why a data scientist or a specialist or uh, you know statistician should read these special issues. Why a, a you know a doctor should read these issues? Why a general public person should read the issue? Why a student should read the issue? I can talk about students. We will talk about the te- technology, the advances in data science that help making personalized trials feasible nowadays. But there are actually lots of room for improvement, and this is really the area that they can look for like topic for this dissertation to further improve the technology, to improve the analytic methods, to improve how to give feedback to the physicians so as, as to help people make decisions. So, so I think this is a fertile ground for dissertation topics for students. So. And I can add that clinicians and patients want this information. We were lucky enough to have a PCORI-funded grant in which we did um, qualitative coding of individual interviews and focus groups, and patients and clinicians, both locally in the New York area as well as nationally, who heard about this and understood the concept, wanted to be involved. They saw the power and the benefits of this for what they're seeking, which is the best treatment at the lowest dose that improves their symptoms the most with the fewest side effect profiles. And finding that out definitively, as you can imagine, particularly for people who are put on lifelong medications and wonder if they're right for them, that's a very powerful reason to read this series of articles and understand what they could be doing even for themselves now. Yeah, as someone who did not understand what N equals one personalized trials meant, this has helped me understand and reading the special issue is what really helped me understand. But we always have to wrap up with our magic wand question. And that's, you know, if you could wave your magic wand, you know, this sounds like to me like the future of the best care possible that you can give patients. In order to get to this dream, what is the one thing that needs to change? And maybe from your own personal, you know, sort of backgrounds of a data scientist and a clinical psychologist, what is the big game changer that needs to happen in the next five to 10 years that will make this dream the actual future? 
two things are needed, I think, to get the advances um, and the powerful opportunities that exist into reality. One, we need more research funding. Many That's always times, the answer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, That's many the times, easiest magic wand. More <laughs> Many times when Ken and I submit grant applications, we do have reviewers who say conducting an N of 1 or personalized trial is exactly the same as usual care that clinicians provide now. They see no difference. They don't understand that proactive randomization, calculation of statistical power, obtainment of objective data, statistical analysis, and return of results is different than what they do now. And so education might proceed more funding for research. But I have the, the second magic wand, and um, I am lucky enough to work at Northwell Health that is ambitious and risk-taking, is uh, reimbursement for this clinical reimbursement for this kind of trial. If, if we can show the use case that this is better than usual care and we can get an um, insurance company to pay for it, we'll start having them happen. And then once they start happening, we can study them. Um, yeah, so for me, there's really no, yeah, sorry to uh, not direct answer your question, Liberty, but to me, there's really no magic wand that will make things happen instantaneously. For me, it's always education. We need to educate our students, we need to educate our doctors, we need to educate our patients. And uh, uh, so money helps, but I, I think in the end, uh, people awareness is important. Which is what we're doing with this special issue and this podcast. So we're getting more aware. We're we're creating it right here that you're asking us to create. I, I just have a thought to remind you know all our audience that if you think about that, our doctors, at least the good ones, they've been trying to do this personalized uh, medicine all the time, right? We always wanted to say you know find a medication you know best for me, and the doctors often do say, "What well, this one doesn't work on you? Let's try another one," right? I think what you're all doing is say, let's do all those things in a very systematic, scientific way. Along the way, we also collect what works, what not working. So I think in that sense, like all we're doing is really bring the data science into this fundamental level to do the science in the right way, to change our personal ad hoc anecdotal evidence into something that we can all learn from, but also can advance our life, health and everything in a real term. So thank you all again, and I hope uh, maybe in five to ten years period we'll come back to do another special issue and to see how much progress you know has been made. So thank you again. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Please make sure to check out the Harvard Data Science Review's special issue on personalized trials out on our website now. Thanks so much for listening, and take care.